Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. Last week I was on um, retreat for a few days, a weekend retreat, and um, the subject of uh, not self came up for me on that retreat. And so I wrote to Kate, who's doing our newsletter, and I said, uh, you know, I think I'm going to talk about not self, but maybe, you know, this I... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Maybe she'll change her mind. You know, who is it that wants to talk about not self? It's sort of a funny subject already, you know? And uh, we had a little laugh about that. But <laughs> who is going to talk about not self? You know? I like that line um, if there's no self, then who has this tendonitis? You know? <laughs> right? There's no self, who's paying the electric bill? So in Buddhism, it's not an easy subject to talk about for an apparent reason. You know, who is it that's talking? Um, And it's certainly not easy in a culture that really promotes a sense of self as a primary identity. You know, we're very individualized and... uh, from a very early age, we're really self-referencing and um, having a very strong eye, you know, a very strong eye, and, and an eye that's really identified with a body, the way a body looks, with performance, how well you do at things, um, with uh, socially, who are your friends, and what do you have, so a lot of pain around this eye in our culture, isn't there? So I wanted to explore this a little bit with you. And, uh, you know, we're always talking about in, in, our, um, in our meetings about these three truths of impermanence, which is easy to see, the impermanence of our lives. It's, we could see it everywhere. <clears throat> And dukkha, which is um, loosely translated as suffering or stress. And um, the other thing is what's called uh, not-self. And how many people get that? Right? What, what was the Buddha talking about when he started to talk about not-self? And that's a much harder concept to grasp. So the Buddha... Uh, sat under the Bodhi tree for about for seven weeks and gained this enlightenment. And then he spent six weeks to journey on foot to discuss or to talk about what he had seen with um, his Dharma buddies, the aesthetics we call them, these five Dharma buddies who had been practicing, not in the middle way, but really intensely with um, leaving all the indulgences behind and doing a very intensive practice of giving up everything and not eating, and they would meditate for hours and go to all these extremes. 
and um, this is where the teaching started. And the first discourse was on the Four Noble Truths, right? The truth of dukkha, the truth of suffering, and what causes suffering, how we end it, and the path leading to the end of suffering, you know. And um, the dukkha that he's talking about, this suffering, is just, it already points to no self. He's saying that all things that are arising, all things are dukkha because they're unreliable, they're insecure, and they're ultimately unsatisfying. <coughs> you know, all phenomenon, everything has this quality. And that's why we don't cling to it. We, we tend to cling and grasp onto these things. And um, we, we, what we need to learn is to kind of abandon that grasping. So that was the first discourse. And then the second discourse was on um, non-self. Not-self, not, not non-self. And um, it's a central piece of the teaching. And, and I feel like because mindfulness is so popular now, and it's beginning to infiltrate advertising, and it's in schools, and it's in businesses, and your job, and how many people on their job are getting a reference about being more mindful and taking a quiet moment. It's, it's infiltrating our culture, and um, it's really important, in my opinion, in my sense, that this piece of what the Buddha said um, is understood and thought about as we contemplate what mindfulness is. To get um, a deeper understanding, you know, a deeper awareness, or this mindfulness thing will be another craze, like uh, hula hoops and... Uh, <laughs> it will be a craze. You know, like certain diets and hula hoops and certain things that come and go. And we won't get the full deep meaning, potentially. So, but this whole non-self is quite counterintuitive to everything we've been taught and the culture we swim in, you know. So it's hard to, um, to really tear apart, but we will. So on my retreat, um, I had a non-self, a no-self, or non-self experience um, that I wanted to share with you as an example of, of, of this, unpacking this. So um, I decided that I would, um, I was at Mary and Joseph in Palos Verdes, and I decided that um, I decided that I would go and do a walking meditation on the grounds. And at uh, the center, they have a huge labyrinth. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, very nice, beautiful in the back of the grounds. And uh, in my mind. I had some concepts going, that I was going to do a long, slow walking meditation through the whole labyrinth It was pretty big, and that it was going to be in total peace and quiet, because it was a cloudy, cold day, 
and no one would be there. I'd have it all to myself, you know. <laughs> and um, it was going to be great. <laughs> it was really going to be a good experience to have that walking meditation in the labyrinth. And, and when I go on retreat up north, there's a labyrinth up there that's in the hills and nobody ever goes to. So I've had this thing all to myself to do walking meditation and deers come and it's really lovely. And I, I expected the same thing um, to happen down here. And so I started my walking meditation with all this seriousness. I'm going to be in my body and walk slowly and enjoy the whole trip. And I'm walking for about five minutes and um, I start to hear this <laughs> thing like that. And then somebody's singing, you know, and dancing, and they're hopping all over the labyrinth. And, and, yeah. And this uh, teen decided that he was going to dance and rap the labyrinth with me, you know, and hop all over and he's doing his thing. And three friends with um, their phones on to take the video of this. You know, and, uh, so this um, I looked at them and I just you know a self formed right. My concept formed. This, this idea of me, I, I am doing mindful walking <laughs> in the labyrinth, and this is my retreat. I am paying for a room at Mary Ann Joseph, unlike you. And you do not belong here. I belong here. And talk about grasping and clinging to that moment. I was totally in it. I mean, the anger that I felt at this young man, who was really kind of cute, but he wasn't at the moment, was just, my, I was consumed with self-righteousness and contempt. I consumed. I was like a black hole of <laughs> self-righteousness and content. So I decided that I would give him one of those evil eyes. <laughs> if you're a parent or a teacher, right, you, you know that look. You've done it, right? Haven't you? I have. My kids know that one. So I gave him my best evil eye I had, you know, and he just looked at me <laughs> and went on dancing, you know, and then... Um, I, I gave him another look. <laughs> I didn't stop. And I think the second one scared him. <laughs> but at that point, I really woke up to I, something woke up there, to uh, this is the self-view that we all grapple with. Right? We're, um, there's awareness, right? And then there's form. So in that instance, the form was a uh, dancing team, you know? That was form. And then from the form came this feeling for me of aversion. I don't like it. I don't want it. And with the feeling of aversion came a story. I should have this uh, labyrinth to myself, it's my retreat, <laughs> and so on and so on. It shouldn't be happening, right? It just shouldn't be happening. How many times have you had that 
uh, feeling and thought, this shouldn't be happening. All the time, right? It shouldn't be happening. Um, and um, then I've created this world. And what was so interesting about that moment was um, that what I was craving, right? My mind had a had a had a desire and a craving for this experience. We all crave experience, and we crave an image of ourself in that experience. That really blocked out the experience. You know, what we crave and long for blocks what's already there. And when I could let go of the labyrinth had to be my way, and just move away and keep practicing into the peace of that beautiful space at Mary and Joseph without um, a demand or an idea, then the fullness and brightness of awareness and the nourishment of awareness, the peace of awareness, the being with what's there was more than enough. It was plentiful. So, we need, perhaps, to understand how this thing that we do of creating an, a self through uh, this process of identification and storytelling blocks what, the beauty of what we already have. And I'll say a little bit more about this. So, so what happens is um, our minds name stuff. We get busy, our minds name stuff. Part of mindfulness practice is looking and listening, sitting without naming, without giving something a name. Why are we doing We're trying to get to that bare experience. But normally, we're, we're naming. We're giving it a name, and that's a noun, right? A person, place, or thing. We're doing it all the time. And we have to do it to make sense of the world. So we're freezing experience. Experience is always changing and moving and flowing, but we have to freeze it a bit to make sense of it. And one noun that we have is myself, right? And we concoct these images like a collage. Who do I take myself to be? Right? And we have many labels. I'm someone of this age. I live here. I do this, I think this way, my politics are like this. I'm signing that petition and I'm not signing that one. You know, um, I have a certain idea of who I am. And all of these are like little snapshot pieces of the way we name ourselves. And this teaching of non-self is really not saying you don't exist, but it's about a way of looking at the limitations in which we build a sense of self. It's like we build this paper mache character 
of who we think we are moment by moment by moment and a lot of us as we've talked about in here many times we build a very self-depreciating image of ourselves we're not always propping ourselves up we're pulling ourselves down quite a bit but all of that self-referencing is a cover it's constructed and it's covering what is um, underneath and so in mindfulness, we're, we're cultivating the awareness that knows the objects that are moving, that are coming and going, even the ones that are constructed about us. And when we see it that way, life gets fun. It gets a little more entertaining. And I'll read you a little bit about um, some of the teachers have written about this. And I'll tell you a little more. This is um, Ajahn Chah, and the book is A Still Forest Pool. And he says, let's see if I can find the quote. With mindfulness, you can see the real owner of things. Do you think this is your world, your body? It's the world's world, the body's body. If you tell it, don't get old, does the body listen? Does your stomach ask permission to get sick? We only rent this house. Why not find out who really owns it? So if we're just looking at mindfulness, I just want to be present in the moment, you know, <laughs> to have a calm, quiet mind. And I read all this research that says it's good for me. It's a good entry point, right? It's a good place to start, but it's a starting gate. It's the starting gate. And this is the one um, from Anam Tupton, No Self, No Problem, a beautiful book. And he says, When all layers of false identity have been stripped off, there is no longer any version of that old self. What is left behind is pure consciousness. That is our original being. That's our true identity. Our true nature is indestructible. No matter whether we are sick or healthy, poor or wealthy, it always remains divine and perfect as it is. When we realize our true nature, our life is transformed in a way we could not have imagined before. We realize the very meaning of our life, and it puts an end to all searching right there. Many people are looking for the perfect life in the distant future. While they're busy wasting each moment of their precious life fabricating mental and psychological problems. We should remember that each moment is a threshold to a perfect awakening. Awakening to our true nature is the key to unlocking the door of the paradise that lies within each of us. Paradise is not some kind of enchanted land filled with flowers and music. It is not some kind of spiritual Disneyland. Paradise is our primordial pure consciousness which is free of all limitations 
but embodies the infinity of the divine. Big stuff, huh? Right. I remember seeing a bumper sticker that said, I believe in life before death. To me, this means we don't have to imagine a future paradise. Paradise can happen right here, right now, while we're in this human incarnation. The choice is ours. So we'll never get this 100%, right? There'll always be some I arising and some egoic thing, and it serves a purpose, and we don't want to strip it away, but we want to look at what's looking, right? Who do I take myself to be? What are my concepts? What do I think I need um, to be happy? And where do I get caught? in craving, desire, aversion? Where do I get stuck? Where, do, where does my consciousness shrink to this aversive state? And when we can see that and, and release and let go, um, we're developing this insight and this wisdom. You know, and it doesn't have to be a huge uh, philosophical breakthrough with fireworks. And, mm -hmm. You know, it can be the small things, those small moments. Um, I remember about 15 years ago, such a long time, I went on a uh, meditation retreat, and to save money, I, um, I decided that I would camp instead of dorm. So I got a tent. Wasn't a good idea. <laughs> I'm from New York. Every sound, every sound in the tent scared the daylights out of me. Talk about fabrications. I thought there were wild tigers around my tent. You know, it was just impossible. And there was a big old heat wave going on. It was hot in that tent. Oh, it was really hot. And, and I still believe all the animals were out. I don't know if they were. But, <laughs> but um, so it was really hot, and I was convinced that there were animals cir circling my tent. <laughs> Being from Brooklyn, what do I know, right? And so uh, there was a, a pool at this place, actually, and it, there was a deck, and it, you... It, you climbed up, it seemed like it was higher than the land, so if you sat on the deck, there seemed to be a little bit of a breeze. It must have been like 100 degrees, right? And so I thought, well, this would be a good place to put out my sleeping bag. And there, it was well lit, so I could, you know, see who was coming, right? <laughs> so I, I put out my sleeping bag, and I get in the sleeping bag, and I fall asleep, and the next thing I know, I feel something. I feel something. And I look up. And there were three huge raccoons oh looking at me, right? They were just like staring at me down like, you know, <laughs> like that. And um, it was very clear that this was their deck where they sleep. <laughs> and I, right, I was occupying their space. Uh, and uh, so we had a little steering concert, uh, steering little match there in which I lost <laughs> and I packed up and got into my car <laughs> but uh, they won but even the concept of, as a human right I have domain over the animals right it's my deck 
It's my world. No, it's their world. <laughs> but our idea of who I am, it just permeates everything. The way we treat this world environmentally, the way we treat each other. So, um, looking at this view in a compassionate way, in a loving way, um, not with a judgmental way, because the system is built, the, one of the Buddha's teachings is that this system is built when you're born, you're born with it. We're born with this system. It's not because we're, we're lacking in any way. We're born with a certain amount of delusion and ignorance. Everybody. That's how we came in, and we came in with the capacity to also um, awaken. Both. We have both. Right? Delusion and capacity to awaken. And so it's not that we want to put ourselves down or feel lessened. I think we want to develop a sense of humor about it and a sense of curiosity, a sense of ex inner exploration as to what is it that's underneath this view? What's underneath this story that I'm telling right now? Um, and um, So to hold this sense of I, me, and mine lovingly and gently is the next piece. And I um, heard one teacher say um, or give a kind of directive on a retreat that as you're brushing your teeth and the body needs so much, it needs um, care, it needs food, it's achy, you have to move. If I sit in one position, there's a it aches, right? This is kind of the dukkha of living, the dukkha of just being, that as we attend to these things, see if that internal voice is filled with metta, loving kindness, that you're doing it lovingly as you would a little child, um, that to take that internal eye, that suffering, and to infuse it with love for this being, for ourselves, the fact that there is so much suffering infused with our existence. The fact that sometimes every, all these things, small and big, have this dukkha, this, this edge to them, this hardness, this difficulty. How many people had aches while they were sitting for 30 minutes, mm -hmm. right? How many people had worries that came up? legitimate worries, right? So the dukkha and the delusion and my sense of stuff, they're all, we're born with it and the culture um, sustains it. So to go through the day lovingly towards yourself, metta, loving kindness towards yourself, kindly and lovingly brushing your teeth or attending to this ache or paying a bill or addressing something difficult, surrounding it with loving-kindness, with metta, radiating the metta for yourself, for this piece of human existence that's difficult and tricky. And I had to ask myself, and I actually asked Joel, I said, why am I talking about no, no, non-self or not-self in a week that was so difficult as a country, you know, with so much pain and suffering, children being slaughtered um, in a senseless way. Why am I talking about it now? Like, why, why now? 
this doesn't fit. But it does fit because when I don't put so much energy into my self-view, my sense of right and wrong, my sense of justice, when I'm not a self-fighting and angry, you know, but when I'm present, I'm not rejecting, I'm not pushing away, I'm aware and I'm allowing what's happening in without having to hold that hard edge of self, there's a lot more precision, energy, attention, clarity, love, freedom, um, capacity to do what needs to be done. And that's why non-self is still an important topic. And I will say a hard part about this is working in mental health, and many of you do, and some of you are in schools, um, without giving away confidentiality, many of us have had to take away weapons, stop something. It's part of mental health. Uh, get people out of an environment and put them in a safe environment, lock, you know, in mental health. And I've seen colleagues do it. I've watched it many times. I've, 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 many times I've watched somebody take away a knife or a gun or a weapon. Um, and when I look back at those moments, there was one I was involved with where we did remove a gun not too long ago, and I can't say more about that. It was done with complete love, presence and love. I've seen it many times when people have to serve and do what needs to be done. There's no I in there. There's no self-referencing. You're there. You're there in love. You're there in presence. You're in the moment fully. I've seen it many, many times. So we can work with this edge in our practice. You know, we can work with this edge, this me, mine, my idea, who I am, right? We can work with that skillfully to uproot what gets in the way of presence and being in love and just allowing what's underneath that to come through. Mm -hmm. And that in itself is the journey, you know? That in itself is the healing. So while I wish for everyone that we never have a week like this again, that we never have to turn on the TV and see this kind of suffering in our society, I also know that to do what needs to be done, practice, practice, 
practice. You know? I don't need that knot of a constricted self. I don't need to do this, I need to do this. And in this way I can serve. So, taking a few moments to close your eyes. Taking a few breaths here. And allowing ourselves to open to, in a heartfelt way, with care, intention, kindness, for ourselves, for the difficulty of just being human. and surrounding ourselves with this field, with this sense of love, compassion, kindness. May I care for myself lovingly as I care for others lovingly, may I care for myself lovingly. May I hold myself with kindness. May I bring kindness to myself May I bring kindness to others. And I expand the circle to include everyone in this room. and beyond this room. May I hold this world in kindness. May I hold all beings in kindness. May kindness saturate our greed, our delusion, and our aversion. 
And can we be free, may we be free from suffering and the roots of suffering. May kindness free us from the roots of suffering. Just listen to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.